you're listening to another episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. If you're new to Tales, welcome. If you're returning for more, thanks for coming back. Tales has been downloaded in over 800 cities in 50 countries worldwide. So I thank you for all your support. This is the final episode of season three, and next season will be the end of the quadrilogy. In other words, by the end of season four, after a hundred plus episodes with topics ranging from female golfers with no panties, making me perfectly aware of the fact that they were wearing no panties when we were in the middle of a bet. Strippers on a golf course. Good and horrible customer golf. Zen mind training. Local characters in Charleston like Cloudy Graves, Billy the Kid, the Tin Man, Mike K, Guns, the Wisconsin Slammer, and more. Interviews with the illustrious Bev Cart Girls. By the time I conclude the fourth season, Tales from the First Tee should just about cover every topic I can imagine about human behavior and the sport of golf, at which point I plan on just dropping the mic. In this episode, I'll share a golf experience with a player I'll just call Paul Bunyan. Is hope a strategy in golf? Living in the now, how to play an anxiety-free round of golf. Electronic surveys, when did we start doing the job of managers from companies that we're dealing with? But first, a skinny minute on the war. Not the Russian-Ukrainian war. Not the war on poverty, not the war on drugs, the war between the Smiths and the Rocks. Dana, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it, all right? Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> it was at this moment that he knew he fucked up. Oh! Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. He needs some milk. Get my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Will Smith smacked the shit out of me. Will Smith smacked the shit out of me. By now, most everyone has heard the slap heard round the world. By Monday morning after the Oscars, TikTok and Facebook reels were buzzing with the Japanese and Australian non-beeped version of the event. I mean, if that wasn't Chris Rock up there and it was The Rock, then shit would have gone down entirely differently. I don't know what's going on in the Smith's household, but what I saw was a classic pee under the mattress reaction. 
Whatever was boiling under Will's thick skin boiled over when Jada gave him that look, and we all know what that look is. And how he reacted basically broke all social contracts in a democratic society. It also revealed the spineless nature of Hollywood. I mean, when Will gets a standing ovation for winning Best Actor for King Richard just 30 minutes after the slap, I mean, that just reveals Hollywood's thin skin. Racial injustice has been such a hot topic in Hollywood for years. The hypocrisy of the events underscored the veneer nature of the entire Oscar community. I mean, if that happened in the workplace, political rallies, community events, church or school, the slapper would have been slapped with cuffs and had to engage the legal community to defend their actions. It would have cost them time, money, and their reputation I mean, if it was a multiracial slap, it would have incited riots. I mean, was the joke in bad taste? Sure. It's making fun of a medical condition, not a behavior. Just the lifestyle of actors gives us volumes of material to work with. So in summary, I think Chris stepped over the morality line. His joke was off-putting. Will Smith stepped over the legal line and without any serious penalty, set a precedent for the future. The old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never, well, I guess names will break your face. The Story of Paul Bunyan with my double blade axe and my hobnailed boots, I go where the timber's tall. When there's work to be done, don't mess around, just sing right out for Paul. Hey, Paul! I'm coming, boys! Paul Bunyan! Paul Bunyan! Several episodes ago, I interviewed a guy that I met through a mutual friend, and I called him Mike D. Mike played high school golf in Maryland and got recruited to play golf at Emory University in Atlanta. He had thoughts of going pro until one tournament he teed it up against Adam Scott, who at the time was in his last semester of college and about to go pro. When he was playing against Adam, and Adam shot a 65 and then went on to shoot in the 60s the next few days, Mike rethought his future career. Later, he develops this party events business in Atlanta and now does it in three different markets. But one thing that hasn't changed with Mike is his love of the sport of golf and his ability to play. It's customary for me to assign a nickname to most of the characters I talk about on Tales. It's only fitting that the golfer, formerly known as Mike D., will now be known as Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan, Paul Bunyan, he's 63 When you first meet the lumberjack, his stature is probably the first thing that gets your attention. To put it in perspective, at 8 a.m., his shadow casts the length of the entire green in whatever green you're playing. So if any golfer he's playing against politely ask him to move his shadow 
out of the way of the path of their ball to the hole, he's got to step off the green. So not many people ask him to do it. The second thing that catches your attention about the lumberjack is the length and accuracy of his drives. There are few par fives he can't reach into. The third and last thing you'll notice is he doesn't make mistakes. I've played with several pros and pro-ams. I've teed it up with scratch golfers, and I often play with single handicap players. And with all of them, they hit some outstanding shots. Some of them continue to score low, but they all make mistakes. They'll hit it out of bounds. They'll hit it in the water. They'll hit it in bunkers. Their chip might not go where they want it to go. They might even three-putt. But when I'm playing with the lumberjack, and I've played with him four times, he doesn't make mistakes. Paul Bunyan is the closest I've ever seen to pure play during the four rounds I played with him. So I set up this match a few weeks ago with the lumberjack, Southern Brad, and Guns, the Scandinavian sharpshooter, all pretty good golfers. We go up to Crowfield Country Club, a course that I've spoken about in the past, Not an easy track to play with undulating greens, fast greens, and deceptively elevated and some hidden greens. We hadn't played, all four of us had not played with each other before. So the smart thing to do is to set up a match where you switch partners every six holes. And that's what we did. And even with handicaps and equitable strokes, Nobody that played against Paul Bunyan won. Everybody that had him as a partner for the match won. It's like whoever plays with Paul Bunyan is going to win. He didn't make mistakes. Southern Brad was having probably the first nine holes of his life. I mean, he's actually driving the ball with Paul Bunyan to the point where even Guns looked at me and said, this is the best 12 handicap I've ever played with. And when somebody says that, it's, it's like almost like a curse. You know, I've had that happen so many times when somebody's playing out of their mind so much better than their handicap, and then somebody has to say something. They don't mean it mean. They're just observing that, wow, this guy is playing his best golf. Some people are fast starters. Some people rally at the end. Other people, like me, make consistently bad shots throughout the entire round. And so, you know, somebody will look at me after six holes and go, yeah, he is definitely a 10 handicap. After 12 holes, yeah, he's definitely a 10. And my last six holes, yeah, he's definitely a 10. I am the perfect 10 handicap because I will make mistakes during each of the six hole matches. I would say that most golfers at almost all levels have great days, good days, and bad days. It's why world-ranked players miss the cut every once in a while. But in the four times that I have played with Paul Bunyan, this guy would not have missed the cut. Now, maybe the way we equalize the match with him in the future is we put him back on the tips, and then we move up to the mortal white tees. That might do it, but I would tell you this, given the chance again, I would take this guy as my partner 
any day of the week. You can be my wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. Hope is a strategy. At least it is in golf. Over the course of my career, I have attended a lot of meetings, planning meetings, sales meetings. I've even had the opportunity to sit in a few boardrooms. And whenever a manager would start a sentence with the words, I hope, let's hope, we should hope, it was inevitable that the highest ranking manager in that room would always interrupt and say, you hope? Hope is not a strategy. You can hope for the best, but you better plan for the worst. In golf, sometimes hope is what gets you through the round. When I talk to golfers at the first tee, getting ready to tee it up and tempt fate, most everyone is hopeful that this might be the day. Great golfers hope that all the hard work that they put into instruction, practice, and play will translate into their personal best that day. Maybe a hole-in-one. Good golfers hope that their skills will get them through the match and that the guys that they're betting against don't have their career round and maybe last night's activities will affect the other guys more than him. Bad golfers are hopeful that their first tee shot doesn't shank right, slice into the bunkers, pull into the woods, or their first swing isn't that horrible whiff. Hope is powerful. It's a powerful mental tool to overcome the doubt that inevitably creeps into your head after two consecutive bad shots. And I always say, I am three consecutive bad shots away from quitting. You have to conjure up this vision of a perfect swing. A perfect swing when the club head hits the ball smack in the middle of the club face. The ball then flies towards your target with whatever flight that you had imagined and lands exactly where you aimed. Other than Paul Bunyan, most of us achieve something different than our vision if we have a vision at all. Having an hope in golf allows you to forget your last bad shot or at least wipe out some of the unintended consequences of shots or putts that send your ball to rest in places that you would never imagine. Regardless of what you've done prior to each shot, you have to do everything in your control to prepare to hit the next shot as the shot of your life. Once you've done that, you've allowed hope to spark the engine. To allow the feeling of hope to saturate your body, you have to exercise one mental trick, and that is living in the now. Living in the present, never in the past, you give me. Staying in the present 
is the most simplest concept yet, one of the most difficult to practice. There are a few tee shots at Charleston National that, when executed poorly, bring golfers to their knees. The one thing they all have in common is they all present visible and reachable hazards that could rent a room in your head. One in particular is the seventh hole. A par 3, 170 to 200 yard tilted green protected by trees and bunkers on each side with an intimidating creek running along the right side of the fairway ending right in front of the green. And to add more distraction, there's a fountain carefully placed in the water somewhere near greenside with a 15-foot high spray just enough to get your attention. Most double-digit handicappers have a similar reaction when they reach the seventh hole. Fuck, I hate this hole. Almost 100% of those golfers that make that statement hit a shitty shot and go on to shoot a double bogey or worse. The shot is usually followed by an expletive or just a loud sigh and sarcasm. Like, of course, or God, I always do that. Meanwhile, at the driving range that morning or the day before, they were hitting shots the exact same distance with the accuracy of a Sarmat ballistic missile. I mean, it makes no sense, right? Golf is a game played within the five inches between your ears. If we bring up images in our mind about previous failures, we're manifesting that bad juju. It's not easy to forget your past failures on any hole, particularly if you repeat them more often than not. That makes sense, right? So what's a method to rewire your brain? Number one, you could load up on transfusions, beer, or white claws. Number two, in states where allowable, you can vape some weed. Or three, you could quit long enough to forget your bad experiences. But if you like to tee it up as much as I do and my buddies, there's another strategy that might help you. I call it living in the now. Living in the present. When I share my thoughts on time, I get a lot of lifted eyebrows or just some eyes glazed over. But here it is. Our lives are filled with experiences from cradle to grave. Each experience happens in real time. Everything you do happens in real time. The past is your memory of a previous experience. It's as fictional as as an autobiography. The further you get from the experience, the more it gets altered in your mind. So my point is you don't experience the past. You experience your own thoughts of the past, which you tend to filter. So what's the future? The future is your imagination of what the now or the present could look like, but make no mistakes about it. It's made up shit. So if the past is a tainted image, and the future is made up, all you really have is the now, the present. 
So how do you use the now to your advantage? During your pre-shot routine, you look at your target and you imagine the shot you want to see. It's an image of the future that you want to see and feel. So you're making the future now. Eliminate any past thoughts about anything that you did, good or bad, at that hole. Now just waggle that shit and smack that shit. And approach that for every shot and every putt. Make your now a hopeful experience that's target enriched. And that is it. So even though I said the future is made up shit, why not make up something that you want to see? Imagine it. Be hopeful. And then go do it. Yeah, and if that works for you the way it's worked for me, let me know. Now, I'd ask you to fill out a survey, but wouldn't you agree that the public's been over-asked to participate in surveys as our lives have migrated to an online experience? Every item or service I buy online, I'm asked to weigh in on my likeliness to recommend a friend or buy the item again. Since when... Did every online company outsource their personnel and customer service management to their consumers? Most people respond to outlier experiences. If you hated it, you want redemption. If you loved it, you want to share the love. But if you don't love it or you don't hate it, you most likely ignore all the requests for feedback. And now there's just so many of them. And if you respond to every request even though it was a mediocre experience, you either have more free time than you know what to do with, or you actually believe that your input will make a difference. Quite frankly, it's so overdone that I just don't want to participate, at least for free. Companies that sell services and goods online have access to all of this detailed insights. Those insights are going to help them understand How consumers engage with their brand. How long do they spend on their sites? What are their conversion rates? If I spend time, am I going to buy? What are their retention rates? If I buy, am I going to buy again? What are the trade-ups? What are the baskets that are uncompleted? You put something in a basket, you get distracted, or you decide you don't want to buy it. I respect that brands want loyal customers that like to engage and even advocate for their brands. But please stop asking me what I think and spend your time analyzing my data. And if you want me to buy more or you want me to stop disengaging, be price competitive. Offer services that are hard to duplicate and train your customer service teams to offer world-class engagement. My engagement with your brand will be reflected in your sales numbers. And with that, I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon in the fourth and final season of Tales from the First Tee.